Hello and welcome to Beyond the Page, a Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today I'm with Joel Rosenberg, the New York Times bestselling author of, well, a number of books, uh, and a Middle East expert. I hope it's okay to call you that. And your latest book is nonfiction. It is journalism. It is memoir. Uh, it's called Enemies and Allies, An Unforgettable Journey Inside the Fast-Moving and Immensely Turbulent Modern Middle East. Joel, welcome to the program. Josh, great to be with you. Uh, fascinating uh, friend lines in the Middle East, uh, mm-hmm. some that are completely cross-currents. Uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, we're seeing all of it emerging in the Middle East right now. And uh, so to write Enemies and Allies at this moment, absolutely fascinating for me and I, and I hope for uh, for our readers yeah yeah I was I was convinced that with everything going on that I was going to get an email or something saying oh, Joel, Joel's busy uh, we're not going to be able to do the interview so I thank you for taking time out of what I know is a very busy schedule for you and I, I want to hone in on the book subtitle for a second uh, fast moving immensely turbulent I think when I when I first reached out to your publicist to request an interview over this book, uh, Israel had a different prime minister, and the Taliban did not control Afghanistan. <laughs> right. So <laughs> yeah. let's. I guess. Well, there let, you go. Yeah. That, that's my point exactly. The, the point. The point yeah, is made. And, and honestly, well, and even if you dial back a couple weeks um, to before President Biden made his abrupt decision to pull all U.S. forces out of Afghanistan, then put even more forces back into Afghanistan, realizing, oh, wait, shouldn't we remove all Americans who are going to be slaughtered or held captive otherwise? Just a total mess. Mm-hmm. But honestly, right before that, you know, I'm not sure if anyone would have paid attention to my new book or because people are tired mm-hmm. of the Middle East. That's why, he's, that's why he and his predecessor, President Trump wanted to pull all U.S. forces out. Uh, I disagree with that decision. Um, we can get into that if you want. But the point is, uh, you know, we still have U.S. forces in South Korea, right. in Japan, in Germany, decades and decades and decades after those conflicts. Why? To create stability, to mm-hmm. strengthen those governments and make sure everybody knows that, you know, don't don't go don't go backward. <laughs> right. And, yeah. And I think keeping a, a, a residual force in Afghanistan, not to do the main fighting, but to strengthen our ally, was important. But both Trump and Biden wanted to pull out, and that's telling us something. It tells us that they're, they are trying to respond to American exhaustion mm-hmm. by the Middle East. The problem, Josh, and I say it in the preface, I mean, not even you don't even have to go past the first couple of pages of Enemies and Allies. But I say this, two things. One, historically, people have long said uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but nobody says that about the Middle East. Why? Because what happens in the Middle East affects us in America. It affects the price of gas. It affects our sons and daughters going into harm's way in the military. It affects our budgets because of trillions of dollars worth of war. And you know, whether you're for that or against it or whatever, it does affect us. And the second part I I say in the preface of Enemies and Allies is even if you want to look away, turn away, forget, not pay attention to events in the Middle East, the Middle East has a way of forcing you to to come back. It's like 
it's like Michael Corleone in the last Godfather <laughs> movie, right? The more I try to get away, the more they pull me back in. There's something about the, 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 the dynamics in the Middle East that force you to pay attention uh, even when you want to say, I, I just want to go do other things, think about other things. And, and honestly, Biden has discovered this uh, anew, and he has forced this issue of how do we treat our enemies and how do we treat our allies? And does mm-hmm. America is America just turning away from the Middle East forever? Um, good, bad, right, wrong. It suddenly put my the, the whole premise of my book onto the front page. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that there was this idea that that withdrawing from Afghanistan was going to be a domestic policy decision in that every, um, you know, all the polls were like over, overwhelmingly the, the, the U.S. people who were polled thought we should leave Afghanistan, thought that there should be some sort of withdrawal. We're tired of this war. And so they thought it was going to be a domestic decision and completely did not consider or at least did not consider well or correctly uh, all of the international ramifications that this decision has um so where do you see right right. but i would say josh which has come Mm -hmm. right back into a domestic policy problem Mm -hmm. crisis for biden why because look if you ask people on a poll if you just ask them one question do you right. want to keep fighting in Afghanistan forever and ever and ever? The answer is going to be no, right? But if you ask them, do you want America to be humiliated? Do you want our allies to be terrified that we won't stand with them? Do you want Americans to be left behind, uh, possibly captured or slaughtered by radical Islamist terrorists if we pull out too quickly? If you ask all those questions, people are going to be like, no, no, wait, no, that's not what we meant. And so – that the Biden team looked very narrowly mm. at the situation in the Middle East. And again, it's a bipartisan problem. I, I believe mm-hmm. President Trump looked at it too narrowly. Also, the difference between Trump and Biden is Trump was dialing down the number of troops, but to his credit and the credit of his team, um, even though I disagree with that, that goal of just getting out, we didn't get out of all these other countries, but, but to their credit, they didn't, completely pull out they kept assessing at each stage what are the conditions on the ground are we are we creating stability or are we creating instability biden didn't seem to understand it i can't even imagine can't even understand how anybody in a professional world in national security foreign policy especially the president who told us they've got 50 years of foreign policy experience how could you pull u.s forces out before you got the american people that are working and living on the ground. How is it, and then you have to send more back in. It's a, it's chaotic. It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. Our allies are furious. Uh, you know, the British Parliament has condemned us. Uh, the head of NATO says it's one of the worst betrayals of NATO ever. Like this is a disaster at every level. But it comes back to the central question uh, of my book, which is. No matter what you do in the Middle East, you always have to ask this question. Do our enemies fear us and do our allies trust us? And right now the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Knowing that we can't go back to a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago, uh, where 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 do we pick up? I mean obviously we have 
the the critical rescue efforts on the ground but long term how do we handle the rise of the taliban in this region what is this going to do to the middle east well let me let me take the aperture and zoom out a bit mm. because i think what it's important to understand that the two central dynamics that are going on in the middle east right now and they're completely contradictory okay there's two there's two trend lines and they're going in the opposite direction and biden doesn't seem to understand either of them uh, number one we have to understand is that that our enemies are on the move on the rise they're feeling emboldened you know the taliban is not our worst enemy right now it's a problem afghanistan was the launching pad for the horrific attacks of 9-11 20 years ago and to be humiliated by them at any time is bad, but on the coming up on the 9/11 anniversary, it's even worse. Um, but the main threat in the region um, uh, are not people living in caves and uh, you know riding on horseback. The main threat in the region is the radical Islamists who run Iran, right? And mm -hmm. they are rapidly moving towards uh, building nuclear warheads. Uh, most intelligence experts are now saying they are weeks just weeks away from having the capability of building nuclear warheads. Now, it doesn't mean they'll do it yet, but they could. That's how dangerous Iran has become. So 20 years after 9-11, Iran is more dangerous today um, than they were. And this breakout is heading just as the Biden administration takes over. Okay, so that's a problem. The, the, our enemies are on the rise and on the and on the offense in the Middle East, that's dynamic number one that we have to understand. And I, and I explain it in detail in the book. But the other dynamic is, is positive. Arab-Israeli Arab peace is breaking out all over. Hmm. You know, we, in 75 years, we had two Arab-Israeli peace treaties until last year. Egypt in 1979, Jordan in 1994. And now, just in a couple of months, at the end of 2020... We've seen four Arab-Israeli peace and normalization treaties uh, with the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco. That is stunning. There is a mindset change. It's like there's a, there are tectonic, sweeping changes of attitude and, and, um, and understanding of Israel and its place in the Middle East uh, in the Arab Muslim world. Um, and I believe more Arab-Israeli peace treaties are coming. And, I, and, and what makes enemies and allies unique is a book. There's literally not a single book on the market out there at all like this, um, uh, is that not only do I describe in great detail these two contradictory trend lines, but I take you into the Oval Office and we talk about it with the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. I, you sit down with the prime minister of Israel, the president of Israel, and, we, and I talk directly with them about these issues. I take you into the palaces in Jordan, in Egypt, in the United Arab Emirates, in Saudi Arabia, and you meet the most controversial, consequential, consequential um, intriguing um, leaders of the Arab Muslim world. But you're not just, I'm not just writing a book based on quotes I've seen people say to other people. You're hearing in their own words hours and hours of on-the-record conversations I've had with the people that are shaping the Middle East right now. Mm. And that's what makes this book interesting, 
Because even if you write a book from five or ten years ago that was well done, it's already out of date because things are moving so fast. As as Josh, you began the whole interview right. with that subhead. It's fast moving, and and that's why I think Americans who were so understandably consumed over the last eighteen months with COVID, the health implications, the uh, the political implications, the economic implications, all the different elements of the last 18 months kept Americans very inwardly focused, and understandably so. But events are moving fast in the Middle East for good and ill, really for good and evil, and it's time for us to pay attention to it. And the 9-11 anniversary, 20th anniversary, is probably a good moment, unfortunately, to take take stock of where we are now. The problem is there's not a single other book out there that looks at what has happened and does it from the perspective of being able to sit for hours and hours and hours mm. with yeah. the most powerful leaders in the region. Yeah, and that, that was really that's really the hook of the book is that and and these are these are like personal conversations. They feel very personal. Mm. Obviously they're on the record, so they're you know there is this this sense of this is an official conversation, but it doesn't seem stilted. It seems very personal, um, and you're having conversations with people who typically do not give interviews. Uh, you have an interview in the book with uh, MBS, uh, Mohammed bin Salman al Saud, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. That is, uh, you know, that's a that's a pretty exclusive interview, and especially for someone who is of of Jewish heritage. Uh, and an evangelical right. Christian to to be and able to citizen. and an Israeli citizen uh, to be able to get into it. and I think just that alone and and we can talk about uh, MBS and his you know checkered history of uh, human rights um, but also acknowledge there is a sense that whatever whatever evil still lurks. There is also a sense that there are so many people in the Middle East, so many Arabs, so many Arab leaders who really do want something different than what they have experienced for generations and generations and generations. Do you find that happening because there is this new generation of leaders who are coming up in countries like Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, United Arab Emirates? Yeah, it looked 20 years after 9-11 – um, almost every leader of the Middle East has had to really do some soul searching. And, and one of the things that they're asking themselves and each other is, what do we want to be? Do we want to be known around the world and particularly in the United States, the world's only superpower, as part of the problem or part of the solution? Do we want to be seen as enemies or allies? Right. And, of course, Saudi Arabia is a very interesting example because um, – on 9-11, 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudi. They were sent into motion in this horrible, terrible uh, terrorist attack by a Saudi, Osama bin Laden, born and raised in Saudi Arabia. Uh, bin Laden's father was one of the most wealthiest, and most powerful and influential and well-known uh, uh, leaders uh, in, in the construction industry uh, in all of Saudi Arabia. So while Saudi Arabia's government didn't send those attacks, Saudis were at the heart of it. So the question is, the Saudis have thought through the years, well, what do we want to be and how do we want the American people to see us? And, uh, I, you know, 
it, it showed in a lot of key points, uh, key moments in the book, uh, Josh, is I, my colleagues and I sat with MBS and we asked him, where, do you remember where you were? What were you doing on 9-11? He told us that he was 16 years old. His father was the governor of Riyadh, the most, you know, the capital of the, of the country and, 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 the, and the sort of the capital province. And um, it, it was Bin Laden's, or I'm sorry, not Bin Laden's, MBS's mother, who saw the first attack on TV, called her children, including MBS, to come and rushed to the television to see, and, and MBS told us he saw the second plane fly into the second tower. And at that moment, he just felt a sense of anger and shame and the sense that being a Muslim or being a Saudi would, would always be tarnished. Wherever he went in the world, people would, would shame him and, and, and his brothers and his cousins because you're part of the problem. And he and his brothers and cousins talked about it, and they decided that they were going to grow up one day and kick the ass. That's the direct quote of the people who did this, meaning they were going to change the kingdom from a kingdom that either turned a blind eye to such terror or even encouraged it uh, or helped fund it or in any way was remotely connected. And he, they were going to change it into a kingdom of 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 of, uh, of safety and security and modernity and progress and 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 support of the West and particularly of the United States. Now, there's a lot of things you can criticize MBS about, but he, this is a huge decision that he made, mm-hmm. and to to and that's what set into motion his Vision 2030 to to make these sweeping changes, these reforms. He's not pursuing democracy, but he is. Pref- uh, pursuing a totally different way from a forbidden kingdom, a, a dark kingdom, a, a nobody can come into that kingdom, to tourism and trade and technology and maybe even peace with Israel. That's where I think they're trending. Mm-hmm. So that story, um, on the record, first person, you can hear it, love him or hate him, agree with him or not. I'm the first person who ever got him to talk on the record for a book. Yeah. Um, about these, all these sensitive issues. There's, there are literally books, there are whole biographies written about him by New York Times and Wall Street Journal reporters, a former CIA senior official. None of them have even met him, much less spoken to him. Yeah, and, and what this does, this really, it, it brings the human element to light to realize that whether they're allies or enemies, they are all human. And they're not, they're not just you know, nameless, faceless entities, an ocean away and a desert away. Uh, they are they are human beings who have motivations for their actions, who have history and culture and legacy behind their beliefs, and are acting in the way they are acting, believe believe what they believe for for reasons that you know make sense to them and are integrated into their culture and i think what your book does is it helps us understand these leaders as humans and that alone is perspective changing for a lot of people who again there's so much going on domestically there's so much going on in an individual person's life that it's very hard to truly understand and, and grasp these international issues because they are so far removed from our daily lives. 
Well, it's a particularly hard if if the media um, takes a certain position and then locks in as that guy is the personification of evil in our universe, or you know, and that's so you have this bizarre. Uh, scenario in which in which most media have have decided that MBS is evil, but the leaders of Iran are misunderstood. And look, I'm not saying that. I mean, it, it's hugely controversial the decisions that MBS has made. And then the question is, did MBS personally order the murder of Saudi dissident Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi? I we I asked him that question directly to his face um, in his presence. Like like I get into that story in great detail. It's the first book that deals with this, um, and and I look at it from multiple angles. And um, but but there but there's a thing. So but looking from the media side, the media has decided that MBS is guilty, therefore evil, therefore nothing else that he does, uh, any positive reforms, they don't even report on them. But at the same time, they uh, the media tends to report the Biden effort to negotiate with the leaders of Iran as positive, as hopeful. The Iranian leaders are sort of misunderstood. They've been isolated. They need to come back into the family of nations. But Iran just, quote unquote, elected totally fake election. But but they just put into power the new president. He is already American sanction list for murdering 30,000 people. But the media is fully supportive of the Biden administration negotiating with a guy who's killed 30,000 people. But they want him to shut down relationship with an ally, Saudi Arabia, on the possibility that MBS ordered the murder of one person. Yeah. Now, again, I get into the, the good, the bad, the ugly, all the different arguments there. But I'm just saying it's hard for Americans to know who who are our enemies and who are our allies. If you listen to most of the bias in the media, you just and even in Washington, you're like, wait a minute, is Washington is Iran our friend and therefore we're trying to make a deal with them and and the Saudis are our enemy and so we're trying to castigate them? Isn't that actually opposite what the truth really is? This is this is the problem many Americans are facing, and, and they don't trust the media anymore. And what I'm saying is, you don't have to trust me in terms of the way I assess and make conclusions off of what I've seen and heard. But come and see and hear what I've seen and heard, right. and make your own decision. Yeah. Now, when with when dealing with any political leader, and this is this is anyone across the spectrum, ones whose beliefs are different, one whose cultures are different, who have a checkered record of human rights, and whether this is Saudi Arabia or whether this is Iran, um, how do we how do we negotiate that balance between maintaining a beneficial relationship? that brings about progress, that de-escalates violence, that increases human rights, while also remaining faithful to that need to speak out against injustice? Well, yes, I, I deal with that directly, both with mm. how we are dealing with Iran and how we should, and the same thing with Saudi Arabia. How, are, how is the Biden administration handling Saudi Arabia, how did the Trump administration handle Saudi Arabia, and how should we interact with the Saudis? 
I'll just say in the case of Saudi Arabia, look, fundamentally, this is an ally. They want to be an American ally. They have been an American ally, but they've been a troubled ally. They've been a controversial ally. But MBS, and he has many flaws, and I deal with them directly in the book, but MBS is taking and trying to, but he's actually doing it. He's making huge, sweeping reforms. Uh, you know, we've been blasting Saudi Arabia for years that, that you don't even let Sa- Saudi women drive. They can't even leave the country without permission of their brother or their cousin or their father or their grandfather. Like, all these things, he's changing all that, right? Yeah. So, so are women's rights getting better? Yes, they are. Are, um, you know, are, have uh, thousands of um, extremist preachers in the Saudi mosques been fired? Yes, they have. Are the Saudi textbooks changing and being reformed to take out anti-Semitic and anti-Christian um, language? Yes, they are. Is there progress still to be made? Yes. But when you look at this, and I, you know, the media hardly even reports these things. And again, you can see these reforms and still decide if you want, okay, but he's still a horrible person. Okay, but you've got to look at the good, the bad, and the ugly. Like, for take take the flip side, Turkey is is a NATO ally and has been for decades. Mm-hmm. But Turkey's president Recep Erdogan, as I describe in Enemies and Allies, is taking the country to a very dark, very right. dangerous place, Definitely. turning away from America towards Russia, towards Iran, and so you have this bizarre environment in which the Biden administration or or the media see Turkey as an ally and Iran as somebody we ought to spend more time working with and giving money to and and, 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 and being more cooperative with, whereas a, a an American ally like Saudi Arabia that's trying to make changes, doing it fitfully, but somehow is, is, is a pariah state. That's what Biden called Saudi Arabia. Biden has never called Iran a, Iran a, a pariah state. He's, so in other words, he's, he's not calling an enemy a pariah state. He's calling an ally a pariah state. How do we deal with that? How, how, and it's confusing and, and, and rattling America's allies because they don't know, well, what's the standard? Mm-hmm. Iran is suddenly the good guys and the Saudis are the bad guys. Like, it's more complicated, but how do we get to that position? Because that's just not true. Right, right. I know we're running out of time, so I want to close with this. It's sort of a, a twin question. Um, was there any point in your travels and your all these conversations you had that you really just had your perspective altered or your mind changed or position that was refined through the people that you talked to? And then the last, uh, real quick, what are what's something that we can do? Like, what are small practical things that American Christians can do in their everyday lives to help improve Middle Eastern relations? Well, those aren't quick. <laughs> they aren't. I'm answer, sorry, but I I will give you very fast answers. I probably uh, the the most dramatic moment in the book is when I'm sitting in the palace of the United Arab Emirates with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed known as MBZ. This is October of 2018. And I ask him, look, you know, we're, we as Christians have been praying for the peace of Jerusalem for a long time. 
and we haven't seen we've only seen two Arab Israeli peace treaties ever. And we're looking who will be the next Arab leader to make peace with the state of Israel, even if the Palestinian leadership is not ready. And he leaned forward and MBC said, Joel, I'm I'm that guy. I'm, I'm ready to make peace. We were stunned because we weren't expecting that answer. We just wanted him to hear the question mm-hmm. and kind of gauge his response. But he said, I'm ready. We're like, you are? And we ended up having a conversation. Now, at the moment, that was an off-the-record conversation. We couldn't come out and tell everybody, the United Arab Emirates is going to make peace with Israel. But two years later, almost to the day, um, the United Arab Emirates uh, announced they were the first country in the Abraham Accords. And I was at the White House on the South Lawn witnessing the signing of the uh, uh, Abraham Accords, this this peace treaty, um, on September 15th, uh, 2020. And I tell that story. It, just to, to hear and know behind the scenes and ahead of everybody else that this peace treaty was coming, and that set into motion three other peace treaties with the Bahrainis, uh, the Sudanese, and the Moroccans. So exciting. Yeah. And so in contradiction to what's going on in Iran. In terms of Christians, I think this book will help educate people on, on the current state of affairs in the Middle East. And when we pray, yes, we can pray in general terms, praying generally for the peace of Jerusalem, praying for leaders and all those in authority. But if you really want to know the leaders that you're praying for, read this book. If you want to know what the dynamic is for peace and war, read Enemies and Allies. And I would go back to MBS. For an evangelical Christian, especially a Jew, and especially an Israeli, to sit with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, the heir to the throne, he could reign for 50 years. And to be able to say to him directly, um, you don't allow a single church to operate on Saudi territory, and yet you have 1.4 million foreign workers and their families who are Christians who live and work here in the kingdom – Will you allow churches to begin to be built? I'm not going to give you the answer to what he said. You're going to have to read Enemies and Allies. But people haven't even been allowed to have that conversation at that level with the Saudi leadership. But God has been opening doors. It's an ongoing conversation to advance religious freedom and peace, as well as fight radicalism and extremism. This is just something that Christians have not we prayed from a distance, but suddenly we, you know, to cite Hamilton, <laughs> the, the, the Broadway show Hamilton, we were in the room where it happens. Yeah. Um, it's an ongoing story. It's not over yet, but you will find fascinating answers, uh, your readers, your listeners will, uh, to the questions you're asking in Enemies and Allies. All right. Well, Joel, I want to thank you for taking time to be on the podcast. I know you got to run. Uh, so again, Enemies and Allies, the journey through the Middle East. You sit down at the table with the movers and shakers of all of the leaders of Middle Eastern nations. You understand them as stereotypes, uh, not as stereotypes, not as political policies, but as people. Joel, thank you so much for your time. My, my pleasure, Josh. I hope you and, and others enjoy the book.